This is Veteran State of Mind, and I am your host, Geraint Jones, and I am very glad to be here with you guys. Um, we have an excellent guest, as per SOP. In fact, we have um, a few. We, we got a few new boxes ticked today. We have our first RAF guest on the podcast today. And before you run away, it's not an RAF regiment person. It is, no, we love you, RAF regiment. Really, um, she was a she was a Chinook crew. She did uh, ten deployments over in Afghan. Did uh, did Chinooks? Did the Murth? Did all kinds of stuff. Um, she's she's got some really great stories, great insights. So I'm looking forward to uh, sharing this one with you today. Before we get into it, guys, I would ask of you a favor: if you are enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend. Please bring a friend along. Let's keep growing the podcast. Let's keep getting the message out there, the stories out there. Let's keep it growing. Um, I know some of you have been doing this, and I appreciate it. I appreciate it. I definitely appreciate it. Um, but if we could do it for every episode. So if you don't enjoy today's episode, then don't tell anyone about it. In fact, that's probably a good thing. But if you do enjoy it, just tell a mate, make a post, leave a review, something like that. It all, it all helps, guys. And... Um, we do appreciate it when you do it. And also, if you could support our sponsors, that would help too, because as I always say, no sponsors, no podcast. I would love to be a massive fat millionaire. I'd be fat because I wouldn't have to work out then, would I, if I was a millionaire? Lying on a beach somewhere in the world where I had the money to do podcasting all the time, didn't have to worry about work or anything like that. But, you know, capitalism, it is what it is. We have sponsors and we are very grateful to them, especially considering that they are veteran-owned and veteran-operated. Zulu Alpha Straps. They make bombers watch straps for Ali blokes. Do you have a watch? If the answer is yes, then why haven't you got a Zulu Alpha Strap on there? Are you a communist? Probably if you haven't got one. So why don't you prove your patriotism by going to support the boys at Zulu Alpha Straps. They are lovely, beautiful crafted things from the hands of a welsh magician that is how good they are uh, if you check out at zulu alpha straps you'll see them on there and you will probably get moist or rigid whichever one applies to you you will get so aroused you will love those watch straps you will get one you can use it to um, not only hold a watch what are some other things you could use it to choke a cat if that's what you enjoy doing. There's lots of lots and lots of uses for Zulu Alpha Straps. So check them out at Zulu Alpha Straps or www.zuluAlphaStraps.com. Head over there. Let them know I sent you. They'll know who you're talking about, the sexy Welsh man, Geraint Jones. Um, and we're also brought to you by Combat Fuel. I wouldn't put anything in my body or tell you to put anything in your body that I hadn't put in my body myself. I've put a lot of stuff in my body, and some of the best stuff I've ever put in there is combat fuel. Pre-workout and pump-up pre-workout. I used to live a lie. I used to live a lie of taking one pre-workout at a time, and I've just seen the light now, guys. And I mix these two pre-workouts together. I have half a scoop or a third of a scoop of the pre-workout to give me a bit of caffeine. And then the pump-up doesn't have any caffeine in there. But I don't... I gotta be honest with you, I don't look at the label. They told me it was good. I listened to them, I trusted them, and I have some very nice pump ups. And you know what? Right, how am I gonna say this without getting too graphic? Let's just say that the pump up does a great job of carrying blood to your muscles, right? It carries blood to other places too. There are benefits to taking the pump up one, which I have found. Leave it at that, all right? Vegan protein is gonna be back in stock. Very quickly, you guys literally bought it out. Um, 
So thank you for doing that. Thank you for supporting them. I'm sure a lot of you will agree that it tastes absolutely delicious. If you use the code VSOM, VSOM, at checkout, you will get some money off and you can throw that money at strippers. You're welcome. Right, let's get into today's podcast. First RAF uh, crew person on the podcast. It's a day of firsts. Please give a very warm welcome to Liz McConaughey. Liz Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. Yesterday was Remembrance Sunday. Do you have a hangover? No, probably for the first year ever. <laughs> I don't have a hangover. Because obviously, you know, you were a part of our Remembrance Day special. Yeah. So um, what, what did you end up uh, doing for it? So um, I watched, it's actually a bit of a weekend for Remembrance really, because obviously being on lockdown, I'm kind of living on my own. So I just uh, watched the Festival Remembrance on Saturday night, which is really good actually, considering... Um, the challenges of social distancing. I thought they actually did a pretty good effort on it. And uh, I watched that on Saturday night and then Sunday just watched the cenotaph and had two minutes just sat on my own at home and kind of quietly reflected, I think. It's um, it's a, a bit strange, I think, when you're not, you know, like I think you said before, it's sort of a day that I've always previously gone to the service in the morning, caught up with a couple of mates, had a few beers in the afternoon, had a few more beers, had a few more beers, and then basically the Monday's a write-off. And this year has just been completely different. Yeah, because I messaged you yesterday saying, because like, I had no intentions of going out. And then once I ran into the boys, and and they, they weren't like, they're like, you know what's funny is like a lot of the lads who are ex squaddies all end up at Power Zone Gym in Wrexham. Shout out Power Zone Gym. <laughs> and we were all together. And I had no intentions of going out afterwards. I had an afternoon of work planned. But as soon as I was together with a group of squaddies, I said this yesterday on, my, on, on Instagram, I felt like a whole person for the first time since March. I really did. It's like, a, it's a weird magnet thing, isn't it? There's been a couple of times that I got out the, the raft last year. I'm working for a charity now. And the guys from Old Call Signs came up to do a chat with us last year for PTSD stuff. And uh, the second they were in the building, we sat at a brew in the crew room. And it's just instant gravity of like back with people who speak your language you know it sounds ridiculous but we do speak a different language to other people and you kind of just gravitate towards x-forces people don't you well dan and sj are also also awesome people so they bring the light of god wherever they go um no they're great yeah i watched their uh, challenge yesterday where they were uh, they were challenging each other i think 11 days of all these crazy fitness things and it was um yeah, it was pretty nails the stuff they were doing, but yeah, they did inspire no, me yesterday, I must admit. Let's, let's talk about this a bit, actually. I want to talk a bit about, a bit about Remembrance, because it's, um, um, like this, I like to think that this podcast is a two-way thing, so maybe you can, have, you can illuminate some light on this, because I'm honestly not sure how I feel about Remembrance after yesterday, to be quite honest, because um, I did go to a service, and... For the first time in my life, I never, I didn't find it upsetting at all because usually I've always found it upsetting. And I didn't find it upsetting yesterday. And I think it was because I was for more detached. I started to think about more of like what the service was and things. And, you know, because in the past, I've not really ever paid attention to the surface because I've had so much stuff that's been on the surface in my mind that, you know, it's the last post and stuff obviously always leaves a lump in your throat. Oh, massively. Oh. But, I was, are you, are you, well, let me ask you this. You were a religious person. No, not at all. Never have been. So how do you feel about that aspect of it being, because I I realized yesterday and that, you know, obviously I'm sure every service is a bit different, but the ones I attend, the one I attended yesterday was, I would say 95% religion. Yeah, it really does depend on who's taking the service. Because over the years I've been to loads. I've been to ones on camp at ODM. I've been to one at Hereford. 
which was very unique because obviously it can't really be religious there because the stuff the guys do, do down there, that's, you know, how are you going to say, you know, uh, in any way, the, the job that they do is not uh, particularly aligned with religion, but they are the peacemakers and the, the priests at the time really nailed it with the service. Um, but I've been to ones when I was the chairwoman down here at the local legion and our local one was quite religious and it really does depend on who takes it. But again, I think because I'm not religious and I would never say I viewed my time in the forces as just a job. It was never that. But uh, I certainly, uh, I, don't, I don't have the religious connection to it that I think a lot of the, maybe other people do. Yeah, I mean, and I'm not saying that religion should be taken out of it because there's some people that works for. But what I was thinking of like, you know, a town like Wrexham, we're talking about thousands of people have died from Wrexham in the service of the country. You know, when you add up all the villages and stuff. Yeah. And I'm thinking... Why haven't we got the granddaughter who never got to meet her granddad because he died? Why haven't we got the daughter or the son who never knew his dad because his dad took his own life after service or something? Where are these people? Yeah. Where is this human story? Like, I believe in a higher power as such. I haven't got a clue who it is. I definitely don't think it has a beard. But like, um, what Sa- Santa? You mean Santa's yeah. not God? Well, I mean, it can be. It depends if he brings up PS Five or not. But it just, it just does, I was just like, once the once the last post was done and Ravali was sounded, I was like, I might as well leave at this point because this is literally to me, and and like I said, I respect someone that's not. But to me, the rest of the service was a man talking nonsense. Yeah, was was the rest of it. Like where I, I want to hear about the I want to I don't want to hear about a god who may or may not exist. I want to hear about the people who did exist yeah. and who no longer exist because they gave their lives more. Surely that's what fucking remembrance is supposed to be. Yeah, do you know what you touched on a really good thing there? I think is the fact that yes, we remember the people who actually died uh, on the battlefield. That's fine, but there is a whole bunch of people who are not walking around on this planet now who have subsequently taken their own lives because of their time in the forces and I think a lot about that as well especially this year I think I've thought a lot about that a lot more than um and I think maybe the all call signs guys have highlighted that to me a little bit in terms of you know the war doesn't really end when you leave does it we all know that and um this year more than ever there's been so many people just you know taking their own lives and yes they didn't die in the battlefields but effectively the battlefield killed them if that makes sense yeah and I I think as well it's like remember it should be about you know families because it's like look when you're dead, you're dead, right? But your mum and your dad and your brothers and your sisters and your kids, they have to, they live with that every day for the rest of their lives. You know, like, let's be honest. Who suffers most when you die? You don't. It's not you. You're dead. Yeah, exactly. Your suffering's over. It's like, more, like, realistically, I, I, I generally, and I, you know, I, I really believe it. it's the mums, the mums that suffer the most. Yeah. Massively. It's funny um, you said about the last post and so I'm not religious at all, but the last post always gets me. And over the years, since my time on Mert out in Afghan, um, I have a real issue with flags. Now, not an issue, but flags are like, oh, I wouldn't say a trigger for me. They don't send me in this spiral of despair, but I find it really hard to look at flags, the Union Jack, uh, and not get a lump in my throat now. And um, and it's because of seeing so many stretchers coming on the back of the aircraft with flags draped over the bodies. And it always, always gets me. And then there was obviously that scene a few years ago, a repatriation ceremony coming out of Bry's where the girlfriend was leaning against the window of the hearse. Oh, man, yeah. And, you know, that just gets me every time because that's the personal element. And it always, for me, has been when you hear the other side of the story, the personal bit that's left behind, that's the bit that always cuts me up. Yeah, when I go to funerals, I always end up like, my eyes are always drawn to the family rather than the coffin. Yeah. 
you know, because I know who's in the coffin, but I don't know who's. And it's like when you see the family, you know, that's when you're like, and you know what? It's it's one of those weird ones that we've had in our ward, and I'm sure it was the same for Northern Ireland, that it's a weird one because it's like you might end up pretending, like if you're on R&R or if you're one of the other companies goes away and stuff, you might end up pretending one of the funerals. Like say in the Second World War, you're not attending, like there's not a family holding a service that you're not you're attending, do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. people are being killed, obviously, but it's a very weird thing about like, I, I, I like I said, I imagine it was the same for Northern Ireland. Um, you know, I attended like the day I flew to Afghanistan, uh, Afghanistan, I attended my friend's funeral in the morning and, and it's, so it's like, you're seeing like, you're seeing the back end of it and then you can't have it out of your head then because you've been to these things. You've seen what it does to parents. You've seen what it does to their families. Yeah. Um, whereas I think in, in the past, maybe it was a bit more like your, you, you understood loss, but you didn't see what it did to families. Cause it was like, you, you, yeah, you understand the action of it, but not the effect. Yeah. It was like out of sight, out of mind you know, kind of thing. And then, and, and, and this is the weird thing. Like you went to Afghanistan, Af- what do you do? 10 deployments, wasn't it? Something. Yeah. So, you know, you, I, I, I really think that what is, I think was, has kind of made things so hard for people of the war on terror. And again, I think probably Northern Ireland too, is dipping your toe in and out. Yeah. You go, you go to war, you come home, you go to war, you come home. I just don't think that that's the way it was ever supposed to be. No, and you don't ever empty your bucket. You know, you come back. We we don't do as long as the army at all. We only do like, it, originally it was only two months away because we had to come back for currencies and stuff. Then it grew to three months at a time for our deployments. So you'd come back to the UK, you'd have your bit of decompression, bit of pod, all that kind of stuff, and then back into work. And, but before you knew it, three or four months later, you're working up again and you're doing all your PDT stuff and all your current, you know, you're all your, you, you go away to do all your dust landing practices in Morocco or America or something. Just And it's already in the forefront of your mind again, that deployment cycle. And it's, you yeah, I reckon in the UK, as a fleet, we would have maybe three months maximum of a year that you switch off from it. And even then, you're never away from it because your mates are away or someone you know is on deployment. So as a, as a fleet, the Chinook force never really got to completely just down tools and walk away from it. And that's quite hard. Let, let's talk about that, that three months then when you do kind of when, like like you said, you are not obviously totally disassociated from it because you know people that are out there and stuff, which I, I honestly believe is harder than being out there yourself. Um, yeah. But like, what what what's a day in the life of um, like a Chinook kind of crew like? So uh, based at Odium, uh, we always have been. We've got a f- uh, some of the fleets split up to RAF Benson. That's where like the Chinook school is, the OCF, the conversion flight. But um, yeah, you kind of rock up to work and if you're doing a bit of day flying, you'll rock up for morning brief. Um, hopefully you've planned your trip the day before, but most of us are pretty jack and plan it that day. <laughs> then <laughs> out of the aircraft, go flying and basically either burn holes around the sky in the UK for a bit of currency or do check rides, that kind of thing, and just practice all most of the skills that we'll need for Afghans. So a lot of um, uh, sort of tactical flying, confined area training, that kind of stuff, uh, on load training. And um, and then we do obviously night flying currency as well. So if you're on a night trip, then depending whether or not it's summer or winter, sometimes in the summer you can find yourself going into work at like seven at night, hanging around until it gets dark and getting airborne at three in the morning, which sucks the fat one. <laughs> and then, uh, yeah, so it kind of, it's pretty diverse, you know, no two days are the same. And um, yeah, so it's pretty good fun. I must admit, I do miss it. You said currency a few times and what, what's what's that? So we have to have so many hours per month that you fly to keep current, basically just to keep your skill level up. Um, and then that role, like that's a monthly currency. You've got a three month currency. You've got certain skill sets and stuff that you need to have practiced. Um, and the pilots need to do a lot of instrument flying currency. 
that kind of thing. So it's a lot of ticking of boxes. It's a bit like PDT training, but kind of on a yearly cycle as well. Wait, when you're in these Chinooks, right, how far like a field are you going from your base when you're on like a daytime exercise? Like how far are you kind of traveling around the UK? Can you, can you literally go from like one end to the other or, you, or is it a lot more limited than that? Uh, it depends how many aircraft we've got spare on the day. So if we haven't got a lot of aircraft to spread out between all of us and everyone needs to go flying, then obviously you can pretty much go for, well, two and a half hours is about your maximum on a, the fuel tanks for the aircraft. So you basically fly about an hour and a quarter away and then come home. Or you'll put around the local area doing all your skill sets and then back to uh, Odium. Um, but if we've got internal tanks, that gives us another two hours of fuel. So you could, you know, poke off up to Wales for the day. We do a lot of our gunnery training in Wales and up the East Coast, up the Wash. So, you know, you can poke off through the London heli lanes, push up the East Coast, do a bit of gunnery and then come back at night time, that kind of thing. And then depending what exercise is on, sometimes we're just, um, obviously a lot of stuff and souls we're playing. And then, loads of stuff up in Scotland so we're just going to deploy up there uh, day running to Scotland is a bit much because it's about maybe five six hour journey up there with the refuel in between so we tend to either that's a whole day out if you're going to go as far as Scotland which is a shame or else you're on one of the carriers HMS Ocean or something and you're uh, like sailing around the UK and you can jump off the ship and go flying in Scotland but yeah pretty much go wherever as long as you've got enough fuel can you uh, can you go flying over london then for a jolly not for a jolly obviously for currency training but yeah pretty much it's but come on oh, do you know what it's probably the best flight we do so um the london heli lanes is the split sort of they come in from the northeast south and west and pretty much follows h3 which is the one we fly up and down most of the time goes up and down the thames and uh yeah, it's pretty wicked, I've got to admit, especially because obviously being a crewman, you can sit and look at the ramp, which is, I've always said, the best seat in the house. A lot of people over the years said, do you never fancy becoming a pilot? And I was like, nope, because if you've got, if you're a pilot, you've got a call sign for starters. And if you've got a call sign, you've got potential to get in the shit. So, so <laughs> always avoid having a call sign. And um, and yeah, I think as a Chinook crewman, you get the best seat in the house because you can sit on the ramp and just look and take in the world. And uh, coming up and down the heli lanes, especially at night time, where you just see this orange ring around London, which is the the M25, jamming up on a Friday night. Yeah. And it's only about 15 minutes from there back to Odium. So it's pretty nice when you're just like flying above it all. You know, you're going to be landing in 15 minutes. But yeah, it's pretty cool. And it's weird to see over the... I was at Odium for 16 years in total. And um, it's weird to see how London over the years has changed. Like the skyline there, I still think it's the best skyline in the whole world. It's the most distinctive skyline for sure. And um, yeah, same things like the shower pop up and like remember doing the London Hellions before the London Eye even existed. And it's just, yeah, it's a bit weird. Yeah, there's two reasons I bring that up. One is because sometimes if I come in the right way into Heathrow, like, and you've got a window seat, you get this amazing view. And because of the Thames and stuff, it's picking out these landmarks is, is incredible. I do yeah. think London looks amazing. But the other reason I bring it up is because quite often people will be like, I saw a Chinook flying over London. Something's going on. I'm like, no, it's probably just yeah, out having a jolly. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. It's it's on most people's list to try and get in as, as soon as they get to the wing. They always try and get a hell aliens trip in pretty early on. And certainly if we've got people visiting, we always try and put it into a sortie at some point so that they can get and go to see it. So, yeah, it's good fun. As a Chinook crew, you must be working with the army like a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you're, they're our primary customers, as we would say. <laughs> but, uh, and the BBC, I think, still believes that they're Army Chinooks, not RAF Chinooks, because most uh, BBC news reports say that the Army Chinooks were doing this, that and the other. It's like, nah, actually, they're RAF. But no, uh, most of the stuff we do is Army based. We do the odd thing with the Navy on the carriers and whatnot, but most of it is Salisbury playing, you know, different exercises with the um, 
a lot of stuff actually the Marines up in Scotland that kind of thing but yeah Army's definitely it you should just be glad that the uh, whether it be in the BBC they don't call you far right Chinooks because yes. <laughs> <laughs> very true yeah. very true but like yeah it's 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 um it's, it's it's one of those ones where like I just think sometimes you think why why isn't why aren't Chinooks and stuff just part of the army because it's like that's what else are they doing apart from like ferrying fucking soldiers around I don't know exactly well we come under uh, joint helicopter command so which is effectively the uh, the joint venture between the RAF and the Ar- and the army but it's a pain in the ass really because obviously the RAF with their budget for things like the red arrows they throw a load of cash at the red arrows and a load of cash at like nice lovely um bases up and down the country and nice gyms and nice accommodation and odium sadly is like the poor cousin yeah. of the RAF <laughs> gets fuck all money from the uh, RAF and JHC because it's funded by the army think well it's the RAF so we're not giving them any money so we get fuck all money fucking hell that's awesome and then they're yeah. like oh why haven't we got enough airframes yeah. right I have an incident that I would like to blame you for um, because I've never met anyone from Chinook crew before so you're going to get blamed for this oh, incident when we were in Muscala in 2009 we were chilling in our tent, and then the next thing we hear a Chinook coming in, and they, you know, they used to land up the hill, didn't you, in 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 Muscala, DC? Yeah. And um, all of a sudden, burn pit is coming through our tent because, <laughs> and then the the poles <laughs> the poles snap at the top of the tent. I get it over there with the pole, which I'm cl- I'm I am now going to launch a lawsuit against you for. Yeah. And then the tent yeah the tent gets squashed, but luckily they obviously realised the mistake and blew off. I think they must have been coming in to land on the burn pit by mistake. Um, but this is the best bit. This is the best bit. So, because the, like, there's no mistake in the sound of a Chinook, right? And obviously, the, oh no, so, sound of freedom every time. So my boss went to the uh, my boss went to the the um, the Muscala DC, the battle group HQ, to tell him what had happened. And then the Joint Helicopter Task Force, whatever, come back with, "I wasn't us." So who was? Oh. So who was it? <laughs> Maybe it was the Yanks. It could have been the Yanks. But uh, no, it probably was us, I imagine. Oh, do you know what? Over my years, I've, dr- I've fucking blown up with so much shit. Blew over Portaloos are fair game. We blew Portaloos over everywhere all the fucking time. And the army are fuckers for hiding them in hedge lines. So we can't see them when you fly in. And then the next thing, just from the ramp, you see this Portaloo fucking over. So, um, yeah, Portaloos are a given. And uh, I remember in Morocco years ago, doing our, we were doing our, our dust landing training out there. And we made an approach and there was a skull with like a corrugated iron roof. And this roof just came off the fucking skull straight away. <laughs> so Roly, who was my uh, other crewman, called an overshoot. So we overshot. And uh, there was just like 30 little kids, Moroccan kids, just looking up at us. It was like, <laughs> fuck. So, yeah, we did pretty. Uh, there's been marquees going at, at fates and all sorts of stuff. But, yeah, we're pretty notorious for it. We don't do it deliberately. Trust me. We don't, we don't do it deliberately. Here's the thing, right? I've nearly had Chinooks land on me because, like, in Afghan, you know, you end up mar- marking out a lot of HLSs and stuff. Yeah. And I've nearly had a mark on me. But then... To be fair, we are camouflaged. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. Well, my big thing was because um, over the years, I then became an instructor and in, in, as a, a crewman instructor, and we used to get a lot of the the junior crewmen were so scared of landing near the troops that we do like you know obviously you guys form up in the six o'clock and we make an approach over the top and. And our guys, the crewmen, would marshal the aircraft like miles and miles away from you guys to land on. I was like, why? Hang on a minute, back up. You know, back ten and the. Um, the crewmen were like, why? And I was like, because those guys have to fucking carry that bergen. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, wherever you land, they've got a fucking tab all the way to the ramp. If you land right in front of them, then they literally have to stand up and get on the fucking ramp. So uh, the crewmen, the, the best way to do it was always trying to get the aircraft just in over the top of you guys and right in front of you so you didn't have to tab for fucking miles <laughs> with your bergens. So that's what we were trying to do. That was the aspiration. Well, I- I'm going to speak for a lot of soldiers here, I reckon, when I say that those moments where a helicopter comes in is one of those moments where you're like, yeah, 
I'm soldiering. Like, yeah. there's nothing as cool as, like, you hear it in the distance and you pop the smoke and then it comes in, everything's getting whipped around. Because that, that's one of those moments where, because quite often when you're on tour, like, you can forget, really, that you're at war, even though you're all wearing camouflage, even though, like, because yeah, it becomes almost like it's a weird kind of fucked up university dorm situation in a way. You're all kind of living together, getting told what to do, where to be. Yeah. But that, And then, obviously, contact is one of those moments. But another one, like an out-of-contact moment, is is helicopters. Like, I've never gone on a helicopter and gone, that was shit. No, good. That's good to hear. No, it's... um. It is. I think you've nailed it when you said about out in Herrick. It became so normal. Like I was probably more at home at Camp Bastion than I ever have been in the UK, which is a really sweeping statement. But there was, it's a simple life, wasn't it? So all you had to do was get up. Like for us, it was like get up, eat, sleep, gym, repeat, go a bit, do a bit of flying, and you didn't have to worry about all the other bullshit that life throws at you back in the UK. And I absolutely loved it. It was, it was just being like on a never-ending holiday. That's like sort of out of the the actual like oh oh six oh seven oh eight kind of era whenever it was really fucking tasty but for us towards the end yeah it was just basically hot massive for a month go to the, or two or three months go to the gym and yeah so what, what was your kind of like how do, how do they work it on a day-to-day basis then when you're out there so we would have uh, a crew on mert um for 24 hours we used to do like about a week at a time on mert but i think we realized quite quickly that that's pretty detrimental to people because you're always on like you're always switched on in terms of just that arousal level waiting for the bat phone to go so they decided to uh, take that down to 24 hours on 24 hours off um so you've got a crew on that you've got a standby crew on that as well so if the mert gets called then a standby crew will crew in uh with another aircraft um and then you would have two tasking lines per day so two crews that would just take two aircraft out with the apaches and go and do the local or the, the bus runs as i call them around theater so you know just the resupplies taking the mail out that kind of thing and trip moves um and then you'd have like a duty crew who would be checking out whatever aircrafts were broken taking them in air tests and stuff and you'd probably have a, a, a down crew which is just like the dog's body crew who would run around doing all the other shit so <laughs> yeah that's kind of how it ran so is there a, is there a lot of people then in, in in this kind of like part of the RAF? Chinook crews. Yeah. So we've got each squadron's got three flights, A, B, and C. And on each flight, there's probably somewhere between four and six crews, each of obviously four people. So 20, what, about 60, 60 in total maximum per squadron. Uh, so yeah. And then there's got, we've got a seven squadron as well, which is the SF squadron. They're a bit smaller in terms of manpower and crews. But um, yeah. Are they, are they like the equivalent of, what is it, the 160th? Is it yeah. the US one? Yeah, yeah. So, um, and they do some of the tastier stuff with the blades and the shakies. But to be honest, a lot of the stuff we were doing out in Herrick for a lot of the years, some of the stuff we were doing with the Paris and, and the Marines, some of the deliberate ops, in fact, all of you guys, really, um, it was tasty shit. You know, some of the deliberate ops, we were going in and unlike a lot of the SF stuff where they would have a soak overhead for a few hours beforehand or even days beforehand, we were going in with, you know, the limited int that we could get and, um, and very little in terms of if the shit hits the fan you know, protection, whereas the SF boys had all of those other elements and a massive umbrella above them. And we didn't. And we just kind of like just sucked it up and got on with the job. So it was quite nice actually to be able to do a lot of that stuff, which was, you know, really the sharp end of the spear and kind of get a bit of an experience in it. How many airframes did you have out in a theatre around? Because I remember in 2009, there was like a patrol minimised for a while because a couple of Chinooks were lost in a short period. So it's basically like, yeah, we've got no one to fly anyone around, so just stop going out. Yeah, I think we had about, we usually have about seven. 
It kind of comes and goes depending on what ones are coming back to the UK for uh, service and whatnot, but generally seven. But yeah, if they all break, that's the thing with Chinooks. It's like fucking buses. Either all are working or they're all not working at the same time. But IRT was always priority. So as long as the IRT cab or the Mert cab is serviceable, then that's all that matters. So if any of the aircraft break or the Mert cab breaks, then they'll take a, a tasking line off and they'll put that on the, the Mert line. And for, uh, with tasking as well, to send one aircraft tasking without the other one, because they always like to have a playmate. So again, if one aircraft goes down, the other ones can go in and scoop them up. So um, yeah, that's probably why things like that would happen, is if, if the, the IRT cab goes down. How often were um, airframes getting hit? Probably, like the the sort of big years between seven, eight, nine, really. Um, I wouldn't say on a daily basis, but a couple of times a week we would either have near misses or the guys were taking uh, rounds. Nothing massive, but um, we've had the odd cab have RPGs. One went through the aft pylon. I can't remember what year that was. That was 27 Squadron. Um, another one took a load of uh, battle damage to the end of one of the blades. But the good thing about the Chinook is it's like an absolute workhorse and you can pretty much take a lot of damage to most parts of the airframe and it'll still fly you back to Bastion. So, I mean, I've taken rounds loads of times and it's funny because you can hear it hitting the aircraft and it's just like this funny little tink, tink, tink noise. And you know that you're getting pepper potted, but you've got fucking no idea where it's coming in. And um, and you're just hoping that none of them hit you. <laughs> so you're just gonna stand there with a the minigun going, fuck me, just please have the little ready, you know, the ready breath glow around you. You just think, please just have that little like bubble around me where I'm not gonna get hit. But um, I've had them come in above my head, I've been able to put a finger on one of the bullet holes that came out the front door and I can actually put my wow. finger through the hole. So it's a good job, I'm pretty short. Uh, I've had one come up through the uh, BP beneath my feet. So we've got BP on the floor of the aircraft and it was like a sledgehammer. We think it was AAA actually. And it hit um, wow. hit underneath the aircraft and I basically just felt like a sledgehammer hit the aircraft. And then when we got back to Bastion, we'd taken a load of battle damage on the engines and done the ramp and then under my feet. So thank fuck we had the BP feathers. So, um, well, ex- explain to people what AAA is. Just a high, higher caliber and higher range weapon than like 7.62. 7.62 generally would have to be pretty low level or on the ground to take that. Yeah, so are you talking about something like a Dushka hit you or something like that? Yeah, 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 Dushka. So um, that was that was quite a, quite funny because um, the engineers managed to dig the round out for me out of the oh, BP. So I've, got, so I've got that at home, which is pretty cool. It's a bit like it's just shrapnel, but... Um, yeah, they reckon everyone's got one bullet in the world with their name on it, don't they? So <laughs> at least I've got mine in my bedside drawer. Yeah, I always think I always think about the Blackadder sketch for that. Yeah, but um, yeah, most crews, I'd say pretty much every crew has had something, you know, at some point shot at or RPG or whatever. Um, yeah, or a pretty tasty landing. So it's not always the enemy that try to kill you. Sometimes it's the ground as well. If uh, you know what the the fields are like in Afghan, going through the all the bodies and stuff, it's pretty tasty landings. So. Yeah, yeah, ab- absolutely. I know there's a few, wasn't there, that were, were had to be denied because they'd gone into ditches and yeah, you know, and, and that kind of thing. Um, we did, I did a, worked on a book with by Major uh, Adam Jowett, who was a OC of Easy Company in Muscala in 2006, and he had they had the, the night where they basically had to like level the town to be able to bring the Mert in. And um, as it was coming, as it was coming, I think it was as it was coming in, or as it was, as it was coming in, it got bracketed like literally an RPG, like a yard by the front and a yard by the back. Yeah. And then so they, they they had to call it off and stuff. And I I just think like with something like an airframe, like put put it like this: if a Chinook, you know, because obviously you guys were busy going back and forth to PBs, funnel, uh, you know, guys coming off R and R, guys coming onto R and R, you know, like replacements coming in, all that stuff. I always thought if a Chinook went down, 
with like with all hands and all kind of passengers. I think that would have been the end for Britain's involvement in Afghanistan. What do you reckon? I think you're right. I think you nailed it. So um, I think just the hearts and minds kind of campaign, if the Taliban had managed to take out one of our aircraft with a whole load of troops on it, it just would have been, yeah, I think game over. Just in terms of either how we'd recover from it and I just think the, the risk of uh, being a risk averse, people, that probably would have been certainly a catalyst for pulling out. But, I mean, we were massively, we got targeted all the time for a lot of the merch stuff. You know, they would set up ambushes and things like that, or they would, they'd know where the casualty was being taken to and set up ambushes. We used to get the icon feed from the Apaches into the aircraft, and it was almost like a bit of a, you don't know if you want it or not, because the Apaches would tell us what they were hearing the, the Taliban saying about, you know, we can see that they called us the fat cow, and they called the... <laughs> <laughs> I was like, are they talking about me? And uh, the Apaches were called the mosquitoes. And they would say, oh, we can see the fat cow. Yeah, there's two of them. We can see them, blah, blah, blah. And um, get up the, uh, set the big gun ready and this, that, and the other. And it was like, fucking hell, do you really want to hear this? Because you know they've got it, but you just kind of yeah. don't want to know that they're actually setting it up for you. But Especially lot... when they're being so rude. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But a lot of the time, that was just bullshit. You know, they would actually do a lot of this kind of psyops type stuff to try and make us think they were setting stuff up. And then there was uh, um, loads of incidents where they would you know, give out where they were setting the stuff up over the over the uh, ICOM. And actually, it was mm. completely different. And we'd get, like, we'd change our routing in somewhere because of that. And then we'd actually get ambushed on the way in from a completely different direction. So we knew that we were a massive target all the time. Um, but yeah, you just, it's like kind of one of those things where you just got to fucking get on with it, don't you? It's your job. You're never, you're never going to not go in somewhere. And this is the same for every single crew. Is that even on some of the nine liners, it was a cat alpha. Um, the odd time we get... Sorry, just explain to people what cat, uh, the nine, line, nine liners and the cat alpha. So we've got uh, cat, uh, a T1 or a cat alpha is basically the worst injuries you can get in theatre. So basically they've got like less than an hour to live. Um, and basically, you know, life-changing injuries, got to get them back to Bastion as soon as possible. So, um, and we will launch in absolutely anything for that. Absolutely anything. So red loom is where the illumination levels are really shit. So there's no moon. And even though we've got night vision goggles, they have to have an element of moonlight or some cultural lighting to actually work the way that the the science goes in the I can I couldn't tell you what it is, but you need to have some light going into the tubes for the tubes to actually be able to see stuff. So flying in red loom, which is where there's absolutely no light whatsoever from the moon, is really tricky. But even for a cat alpha or T1 casualty, we'll launch in that and give it our best shot. Um, and then going into some hot HLSs, even when there was still ticks going on, trips in contact, we would still go and launch. And there's been the odd time we've been held off by the hierarchy back at Bastion um, and not been allowed to go in. And it absolutely fucking kills us as a crew because we're there. We will definitely want to go in and we get held off waiting for clearance to go in to pick up someone. And that's what I guess one of the things I always wanted to get across to everyone was that if we're if we get launched, if we have the chance to come and get you, we would always come and get you and no crew ever on this entire planet from the Chinook wing would ever go, nah, nah, there's a bit, it's a bit tasty down there, we're not going. Every single man did, he would have given their own life, I think, to go in and get someone off the battlefield. What's your average person like in a Chinook, like, because obviously, I'm not going to lie, when I think of the RAF, I maybe pay, I picture some pasty, doughy individuals, and uh, maybe the hated RAF regiments, Calm down, people out there who are rough regs don't really Big hate three. you. Just <laughs> but like, yeah, the, the, the but you know what I mean. Like, I when I'm because like what you're talking about there is what I really consider like the warrior, the warrior spirit, right? Um, and 
and I, I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. Like that's not something that most people um, from the army would associate with the RAF. So, what is the spirit and the what's the kind of mentality like of people that are involved with with Chinooks? Well, I think that's um, that's why I loved it so much over the years because you're right. I mean, the Red Arrows. God, I'm going to get absolutely fucking annihilated for saying this, but <laughs> I think they're an embarrassment. I just don't like the whole RAF wearing blues, you know shiny aircraft type thing i love a bit of spit and dust all our aircraft and hydraulics leaking and and that kind of like just you know get amongst the fight and everyone in the chinook fleet is is like that you know it's some um, kind of i'd say pride ourselves in that kind of team ethos and it's not just the air crew i mean all the engineers will work their fucking tits off through the night to get an aircraft serviceable for things like mert that kind of stuff and we've come back from our tea shouts and you know the engineers are there like washing out the cabin from the blood that's all over the floor, you know, they'll sit, you know, help us wash the, the aircraft out, that kind of thing. And um, and when we have taken rounds and we come back, you know, they're there to kind of scoop us up a bit and pat us on the back when we get off the ramp and go, he's all right, while well, they patch everything up for us. And it's a huge team effort. I mean, when we go up to Herrick as crews, we all live together in the same tent and, you know, we eat, sleep and, and go to the gym together. And you kind of just, it's just, you know, nobody would ask somebody to do something they're not prepared to do themselves. And, um, the whole, I think, Chinook ethos is it's all about the man and the battlefield, you know, the guy in the ditch, and we'll get airborne in any way to go and get them off the battlefield. So it's totally different to the normal, as I call them, shoe-wearing RAF. No, that's awesome. And I, I, I do, I think I even wrote this in Brothers in Arms that that we did have, like, our, our um, like from the infantry point of view, we love helicopter crews, and, like, they're, they're like, in a separate category. Yeah, you know, it's like there's they're, they're not. It's we would never like judge people from the RAF like helicopter crews. That they, they are like a sep. They're like a separate thing entirely. Like you say, from like the shoe wearing. Yeah. Kind of RAF. I'm immensely proud to say I've been in the RAF, but I also always go straight away. I was in the RAF, but I was a chill at crewman, and I always feel like I've got to mention that little sentence at the end to kind of make it credible. Yeah, I mean, my granddad was in a I was was in a bomber crew, so I've I've got love for the oh, RAF, cool. but like. Yeah. Um, but like it's, it's, it's look the same as the army there's a lot of people that never left Bastion or in the army you know like I think my yeah. uh, thing is always just like are you getting out on the ground or even like because going in the air is getting in the ground when you come in into land on the fucker yeah you know and I, I think people I think you know everybody appreciates that and at the end of the day everybody loves the fucking Merc crews because every, like, if you're in the infantry I guarantee you know somebody that's been picked up by a Merc crew absolutely um, right, before we go on, I want to say thank you to Striker Coffee for sending me a bag of door kicker from um, Australia because I'm fucking buzzing my tits <laughs> off right now. <laughs> I just went upstairs, I just went upstairs with a piss I stood there, I was like, fuck yeah, I'm buzzing. <laughs> and I, I'm a man that's uh, um, ventured into the world of stimulants, shall we say. And so, yeah, shout out Striker Coffee. Right, I'll tell you um, what you need to do. You need to make an espresso martini out of that and you can call it a, a Striker Martini. For yeah, oh, okay. get, get you one know of them. what? Okay, like, actually, bef- before we talk about something like I was just I was about to talk about life or death, but you know what? Let's let's focus on espresso martinis <laughs> for a minute. Um, espresso sesh teenies. I absolutely love them, and I, you know what? All right, are you okay? Are you were you were when it comes to booze, <laughs> do you like cocktails or or beers or what? Like, well, what's oh, the kind of so I'm choice? definitely a cocktail and prosecco girl. I must admit, I've had two beers in my entire life. One was when I graduated. Uh, oh no, sorry. One was when I went solo at Shawbury. Oh, not solo. Uh, we get um, busy your your first couple of trips on helicopters, and then you get solo as a crew. So uh, I had a beer then, and I had a beer when I graduated at Odium as a chiller crewman, and that was it. 
and both, most of the, both of those beers ended up on my head. <laughs> so um, yeah, I just don't like beer. I've never liked the taste of it, but I'm a cider girl and uh, I like a good cider, I like a good prosecco and a good martini, espresso martini. Yeah, I do like I do like the old espresso. And a good mojito. You can't beat a fucking good mojito. <laughs> if you got have you got to have the right temperature for it though. Like a lot of these cocktails are. They're, they're so much better enjoyed in a bit of sunshine. Oh, yeah. That's what I've missed this year with lockdown is not getting out my bike and drinking a lot of cider and then trying to pedal home. It's always a bit entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I'm clipped in on my cleats and trying to pedal back from the pub after about 10 ciders. <laughs> oh, you mentioned cleats. You take ci- uh, cider. <laughs> you take cycling pretty seriously. Yeah, I do stay. I haven't done as much this year as I want to take as the lockdown and stuff. But, uh, yeah, I used to be really into uh, I used to do a lot of long distance running. Then I kept getting injured, so I was to take up triathlons for a bit of like sort of spread the love a little bit between cycling, running, and, and swimming. And then I did an Ironman, so I kind of went straight into the deep end in that one. Uh, and yeah, just kept it up a little bit. So, but I like cycling a bit more than running because if you go out for a long run, you're blown out your hip by the time you get home, and you can't really stop at the pub for a drink on the way. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> when you're cycling, so that, that's, that's why it boils down. To yeah, you, and I did a battlefield tour a couple of years ago in France, and just cycled around all the battlefields in Normandy, and it was freaking epic. It was really cool. It's pretty flowy there as well, so it wasn't exactly hard work. Was that organised, or was that something you just did off your own bike? No, it was just me and my ex husband. We went out there. He was he's ex army as well, so we went out and just uh, took the camper van and went around. It was, it was really really. really good actually i'd recommend it to anyone if you're into even if you're not into fucking cycling just go because the battlefield tours are brilliant oh yeah i absolutely recommend it i think it's it's something i think the government should make funds available for people to go for school trips to go and stuff i I absolutely and you know what it's kind of good to go under your own steam i think because you can that you you sort of force yourself to kind of research it yourself then Mm. and you know rather than just being a, a sheep and kind of, you know, we're all the same, especially when you've had a few beers, is that if someone's standing there telling you stuff, it's so easy to zone out. Well, stop and, drinking uh, then. Get your yeah, drinking problem but, under control. Yeah, but if you are uh, if you actually research where you want to go and you, you know a bit about the history, you take a lot more in, I think, and you can kind of do it in your own timeline. So, um, yeah, I'd recommend it to anyone. Unfortunately, that requires people taking initiative and doing some research themselves. So yeah. as much as I agree with you, that is the way to do it. I'm not going to hold on my for, uh, my breath for that to happen. Yeah. Do you think we'll ever get a battlefield tour of Afghan again in the years to come? Uh, I think so. You think? Because yeah, I, I really think so. So we had a, um, you know, we had a, a, a we've had Levison Wood on the podcast. He fucking backpacked across Afghan yeah. <laughs> like 2003. But um, I, mean, I watched some of his stuff actually. I don't think that they hold grudges in the way that some people think that they do. I genuinely think that if we fucked, if we were just like, you know what, like, so I'm not saying right now, but in 20, 30 years time, if we're just letting them do their own thing, I think they will be fine with people just coming by. I think that's just the fact that we're sticking our nose in trying to interfere with them is the problem. Yeah. I, I really, because they have such a culture there. They're, you know, they're very strong on the culture of if you are a visitor to their place, they are like duty bound to protect you. That's the old Pashtun Wally, isn't it? And I think, um, I think you're right. We uh, almost tried to put Britain's blueprint on Afghan, and that's not how Afghan have ever worked. You know, out there, you steal something, you get your hand chopped off. That's actually not a bad way to do stuff, in my opinion. <laughs> and I think, you know, we've tried to put what our laws and, and, and religions are a little bit almost as well on their over on their culture. And, you know, if we just leave them to it, they'll, they'll every country, in my opinion, level itself out in the way it wants to be run. It's just like, it's like sand. It'll find its natural status quo, won't it? And, um, and I think, yeah, now that we've left it to itself, then it might settle down a bit. On that note, what's it like being a woman serving in Afghanistan? Uh, do you know what? I never actually tried to overthink that one because I thought if we, if we went down as a crew, 
Well, we're all fucked, really, aren't we? <laughs> but <laughs> well, yeah. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as prisoners being taken in, yeah, in Afghanistan. Yeah, so that's what so. you know. I'm probably going to go through it a little bit before I get killed, but I'm definitely going to end up dead at the end of it anyway. So it kind of really didn't matter. But uh, I think the only thing they like to they like to put this stuff in in male, yeah. female, or donkey so, anyway. So <laughs> probably everyone. especially in the Tuesday in Bastion Hospital. But um, no, I was uh, I never tried to overthink that one. I was just I always kept on top of my physical um, sort of. Fitness, because I, I thought if we ever did go down as a crew, I didn't want to be the fucking bird at the back who was keeping everyone back. So I always make sure I could always make sure you're on a crew with some fat fucker so you can outrun them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, that was kind of the only the, the only thing I was o- almost aware of being a female in my job because there was a couple of years where I was the only chick uh, on the wing. And um, yeah, the only thing that shit about is that you can't get away with stuff. Even if you're in the bar drinking, again, coming back to alcohol, mm. everyone's like, well, that female crewman was like lash last night. And you're like, you can't go, <laughs> it wasn't me, it was so-and-so, because it's anyway. <laughs> but uh, over the years, I've had a few more. I've come onto the wing and stuff. So, yeah, there's about, I think at the peak, there's about five or six of us, which is pretty cool. But, uh, yeah, we're still not, definitely in a minority, 100%. But what, what, about, what about from the point of view of a woman with a, you know, you're not, you, you not only have a job, but you have a warfighting job. Uh, in a country where girls are denied education, women are basically property. Like, what about that kind of side of things? Did, was that something that ever crossed your mind? I find it quite difficult when we're flying a lot of the Afghan um, the governors and stuff because we used to fly them quite a bit. And um, we there was one incident where we had a load of guys on the back of the aircraft and one of the turbines came off and it sucked out the ramp and wrapped itself around the IR jammer outside the ramp. So um, obviously that's not good for us because we need that to work. So I basically shimmied down the, <laughs> off the ramp, kind of and pulled this, uh, put my arm as far as I could up the side of the aircraft to untie this thing from the side of the IR jammer and pulled it back in. It was covered in shit. So basically like dusted it all off and folded it up and handed it to him. And he wouldn't take it off me because I touched it and I was a woman. And I thought, fuck you, you've just risked my fucking life for that. And he wouldn't take it off me. <laughs> so um, things like that I find pretty insulting. And um we used to brief the Afghan, uh, the ANA, and well, they were just a law unto themselves. If they were, most of them were on drugs and high on drugs most of the time, anyway. But um, yeah, I just don't think me briefing them, you know, on uh, stage one drills at the ramp and stuff like that, and how to escape if we had a hard, like a hard landing or anything like that, they just didn't understand it. And the same for seatbelts and stuff. They just, I think there's not only the barrier of me being Northern Irish, but when it comes to having a woman talk to them and try and tell them what to do, it was just an, a non-event. So a lot of the time we sort of switched on to that. And if we had to give uh, briefs of any, you know, point to them, we would just suck it up and get one of the lads to do it, you know, and it was no disrespect to me. I just said, like, we'll get the message across more effectively if one of you do it. So we could just take that one on the chin, really. Do you ever pick up any Afghan civvies as, as casualties on the moot? Yeah, yeah. One of my favourite stories actually was um, we picked up a little girl. It's quite early on, actually. I picked up a little girl. She must have been even about maybe eight years old. She swallowed a spring out of a mattress. Jesus, what the Who knows how you do that? <laughs> but uh, in fact I think it was someone like Musa Kaller and Noizad or someone we had to go and get her from but um, you picked her and her uncle up who could speak very very vague English so we went and picked them up brought them back to Bastion Hospital and off she went that was fine and then actually we and the crew the next day went up to see her in the hospital and we actually made a, a really good point over the years of not doing that with a lot of the Brit casualties because some of the time you just didn't want to see what the other side of the story was you know we had a job to do get them back to Bastion and actually I think we all felt that if we made that emotional connection with people that would fuck us up even more mentally so a lot of the time we didn't but we knew that if someone was survivable and someone was doing okay we'd pop up maybe and see them the next day but um 
this little girl and I went up the next day and went in to see her and she was absolutely like wide eyed, didn't know who we were or anything. Um, and we took her some, we get air crew rations, so we always had like Coke and Haribo and stuff like that. So we took her bag of that up and um, and her uncle explained who we were. And yeah, she was really, it was really sweet just seeing a little smile come across her face and stuff like that. So that was pretty cool. Um, yeah, I picked up quite a lot of civilians over the years. Any particular missions that like stand out from your time in Afghanistan? Um, so I picked up a guy in Kajaki who jumped off Kajaki Tower and uh, split his ass open. I wonder if he's listened to this. That was always a good one. And we heard, because you get the, usually the uh, the nine liner comes in and you'll get details on the way up of what's happening or you'll get, you know, sometimes you're left with all the information. Sometimes you don't, you'll only get like, part of the picture. You'll get on, on your way and you'll get more information as you go. But I remember getting about three quarters away up to Kajaki and this guy turned out, he split his ass open <laughs> jumping off the tower. What do you mean split his ass open? Well, I, don't, I, I didn't ask, I didn't ask to look funny enough. No, I want to know, de- know details here. <laughs> I, I was just split. Well, he was, the, the, the tower or the, the water tower up at Kajaki is about I think it's about 40 feet high like and uh yeah I think the uh I think it was a para I can't remember it was really it was years and years ago it was one of the first steps and yeah he, they were all egging each other to jump off this uh this tower and uh we had split his ass as he hit the water so uh maybe he's listening and he'll uh call in and uh and give you the full story but yeah we had to pick up him that definitely sounds like a cover story for a para using something up his bum <laughs> that he's, that he's, that he's then come up with a cover story for. It wasn't vibrating when he came over the aircraft. Oh, I mean, the <laughs> that way. But, um, and then uh, I think I was telling you the other day in the uh, Remembrance episode about the, the guys from Wishton. We picked up five guys in a one who had all been killed. And uh, and then coming over the ramp was just, yeah, it'll always stick in my brain because there was like, one you know stretcher had a rifles flag on it another one had a man united flag on it there was one with a union jack on it and every flag was different and it was just yeah just seeing five of our guys basically fill up the cabin floor in a winter was pretty hard to swallow i must admit but um yeah so they're kind of the main ones i guess that stick yeah it must have been nice when you picked up guys for r and r and stuff that must have been a nice mission oh yeah 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 so um we always used to declare that we had 24 sidewall seats in the aircraft and uh in the kind of busier days in Afghan, you could always squeeze an extra one or two in, but you were only legally meant to ever have 24. And it was hilarious because the uh, the dust curtain that goes across between us and the cockpit, we used to pull that across for just landing so that the dust didn't go into the pilot. And uh, obviously it's their call sign, so they've got to make sure that they've just got the right number of troops down the back. But uh, if for R&R, if you're collecting people and you're like, you've got 24 people in the back of the aircraft and some geezer's gone home in R&R, like, fuck. So you just always get them on, just jam them in. And uh, every time the, the pilot used to go, how many uh, POB have we got? We'd be like, yeah, yeah 24, when there was like fucking 50 people. <laughs> You'd just be like, get them home, get them back. So, uh, yeah, we, you know, you quite happily bend the rules for people that go on home and R&R easily. Right, let's talk about guns. What's your favourite guns? What's your favourite guns on the on the airframe? Oh, I've got to be controversial. I'd probably say the M60. So we've got the M60 fitted on the ramp. The pig. Yeah, it's a, but it's all trusty. It always it never lets me down, that thing. Um, and then we've got a minigun left and right at the front doors. So um, the minigun used to be 2,000 rounds and 4,000 rounds a minute. So that used to be women and kids and them real badasses used to get 4,000 rounds a minute. I'm only joking, by the way. But uh, <laughs> it's now just uh, one one trigger and it's 3,000 rounds a minute for the minigun. Um, and yeah, it's it's... It's a beast, I'll give it that. So um, whenever you do open up with a minigun, it's basically like watching Star Wars because it just, um, it's four bit, I think, at the minute. And um, yeah, it just basically lights up the sky. So, so you mean the tra- you're talking about the Tracer 4? So it's like... Yeah, yeah, yeah. So did you ever, because this is the first thing I, I would do in this position, so I'm assuming a lot of people have done it. Did you ever reenact a scene from Full Metal Jacket? 
No. What? I'm pretty sure there's been a lot of people. Yeah, the, the, the M60 at the back rolling. Yeah. Yeah, when he's um, like, get some. Get some. Get some. It's funny because the first, uh, I used to be a gunnery instructor actually, and we used to take uh, the, some of the junior crew up. And the first time, because you have to basically hold this trigger in, it's like just a little pressle switch. And uh, you have to hold it in, like you have to give it a good uh, five to seven second burst, which actually when you're pressing it feels like quite a long time. But you used to get the junior guys and you used to, like the first couple of times they ever used the weapon, they would literally press it. And as soon as it opened up, they'd let go of it and it takes because the way that the minigun works it has to spin itself up and then it spins itself down again so it doesn't like being just pressed really quickly so you used to literally say to them like press the button and then say get some get some get some three times <laughs> and then that would generally be about five to seven seconds but uh yeah it's good it's um it sounds amazing i do love the sound of it and I have to bit when we do gunnery sorties and the pilots are in the front they always love hearing it open up and uh, out in America, there's some 360 ranges that we can use. So you can have both the miniguns and the M60 and the ramp all going at the same time, which is pretty fucking cool. Did you ever man pack it and fire it from the hip like Predator? <laughs> no, I could barely fucking <laughs> hit anything when it was actually mine. Didn't mind throwing uh, fire from the hip. But uh, yeah, I've had to use it a few times in anger. I think most crews have really. But um, yeah, it hasn't let me down, which is good. It must be nails to to hit anything like while you're because uh, presumably the pilot's making moves that you don't know about, so you, it's not like you even know you're going in a straight line or whatever, right? It must must be yeah, really difficult. Exactly. Well, over the years we've kind of adapted our training with it for that very reason. So now we we do a lot of training where you'll do like approaches to overshoot, and then the pilots will just do whatever the fuck they want, and you try and stay rounds on target. Um, but a lot of the time, you know, obviously we'll practice to try and hit the target with the first round. That's, if I'm being realistic, never going to happen in Afghanistan. So you just basically have to watch your tracer and walk on. Um, and a lot of the time, you guys might know the same, is that it's really hard to identify a firing point. Oh, so yeah. um, you're fucking lucky if you can, really, most of the time. So, it's, you know, just putting down suppressive fire and, and hoping, like, trying your best not to fucking hit our guys, really. <laughs> so, yeah, it's... um. And it, it's when you've got 120 knots as well going over the actual barrels, it's pretty hard to maneuver. It's not exactly light, so it, you do have to use your whole body weight behind it. But so, what, what do you mean by that? 120 knots and stuff. So, 120 knots is what our flying speed is on the aircraft. So, it's right. a big chunk of metal, obviously, the minigun. So, you've got to, it, it'll naturally sit rearwards in the airflow. So, even to have it pointing out oh. at the three o'clock, you've got to physically push against the handle and maneuver into the three o'clock. So then if you want to shoot something in the one o'clock, for example, of the aircraft, you've got to literally like push your whole body around onto it. So the bigger you are, the easier it is. Clearly I'm a little waif. So <laughs> I had to use the entire body force to kind of get it into position. But um, So what you're telling me is you get to shoot stuff and have a workout at the same time. Yeah. yeah Sounds pretty great. fucking awesome. Yeah. Uh, and the M60, again, at the ramp, it's just um, steady Eddie, really. Yeah, it's only... Uh, a thousand rounds a minute, but it just um, it's it just sounds like something from the Vietnam War because mm. it is something from the Vietnam yeah, War. But it's uh, a, yeah, it's the pig. it never lets us down. Yeah. Is it is there any is there any other jobs in the military you ever think that you would like to have had a crack at? Do you know what? Absolutely not. I uh, I've always said I think, um, and a lot of soldiers would probably say the same. I think it's almost like a calling for us sometimes, and that you kind of I always felt like I was a tunic crewman. It wasn't my job, if that makes sense. It was me, and um, I loved every second of it, and. Again, coming back to the pilot thing, I, I never had the aspiration to go and be a pilot. There was loads of guys that did, loads of crewmen who have transferred across and gone off to be pilots. A lot of guys got the commission to do the other stuff, you know, like uh, ops officers and things like that, but an int as well. But for me, it was just, yeah, absolutely the best job in the in the, the entire Air Force, really. And if I'm being honest, and pretty much the forces, I just loved it, every second of it. Where you live now, do you ever see Chinooks? 
Oh yeah, pretty much every day. So I live uh, about ten miles from camp now. So they're put around. Tell people where you live. You might get some stalkers uh, after this podcast. Amazing Stoke, <laughs> amazing Stoke. Yeah, bright lights of amazing Stoke. But um, yeah, the camp city on the road really. So you see chinooks flying around here all the time, and um. I have to admit, over lockdown, when I was sat on the sofa feeling pretty useless this time, um, hearing them go past the window, I missed it more than ever, really. Because I think a lot of people probably say the same, is that when you leave the forces, you kind of want to distance yourself from it as quick as possible, as far as possible for a while. And just kind of, you're, you're only this kind of bubble of like, oh, life's going to be amazing. And I've got a whole new start in life and it's going to be great to be a civvy. And that kind of lasts for about a year. And then all of a sudden you have this big fucking wave that hits you and you go, I fucking really miss it. And I had that this year during lockdown. I was like, I would give anything to be back in doing it again. But such is life, eh? So you got medically discharged, right? Yeah, just uh, had neck injury from, well, it was like an accumulative neck injury from flying with goggles and our helmet. And uh, How big are your fucking goggles? <laughs> <Must be. laughs> so we've got MVDs, you know, the night right. goggles that you fit in your, on your helmet, but there's a counterbalance weight that goes in the back of them. So you basically fit them to your helmet and then you put a counterbalance weight on the rear of your helmet. So you're actually putting a whole load of stuff on there. And then the nature of our job, you're hanging underneath the aircraft, looking at undersung loads and stuff like that. So you're kind of putting a load of weight in the wrong place and then rotating your head around and stuff like that. And our seats down the back of the aircraft, which I'm sure you've seen, like we don't get any special seats. They're just the same shit seats that you all sit on. So our posture is all pretty fucked and our all the backs are fucked and just humping, dumping shit over the ramp for however many. I did it for, uh, I was in for 17 years and, you know, I got 3,000 hours on Chinooks. So I certainly pulled my weight on it. Um, but yeah, I just eventually gave up completely on my last Falklands step. And I was just like, you know what, if I can't fly, I don't want to stay in. Right. Because sitting in an office watching Chinooks take off outside every day, I just thought, fuck it, I'll pull a pin and leave on a med discharge. But yeah, and it, you know, I, if I could still fly, I'd definitely still be in. Let's put it that way. You've probably had the best period that a helicopter crewman in the history of the RAF could have had. Yeah, I think I hit it at a pretty good time. A lot of my colleagues are the same, actually. A lot of my peer group stayed in about the same time as me and then left about the same time as me because it all got a bit boring for a while. And it's it's that thing like the devil makes work for idle thumbs. Everyone got a bit twitchy when we're back in the UK and a bit bored. And it's like, although I was saying earlier in the interview about, you know, a normal day in the UK, you go in, you fly around the UK and you do all your training. It's just not the same. You're not achieving. I, I don't ever felt like we're achieving much in the UK. You know, yes, you're moving guys around the old exercise, but you're not saving lives. You're not delivering ammo. You're not taking essential water and rations to people or delivering their Christmas cards. And um, and everyone just loved being out and actually, you know, doing the actual job. And from 2015, really, there wasn't a lot going on at Odium for the Chinook Force. So, uh, yeah, I'm not, I mean, we're out in Mali at the minute. A lot of my colleagues are out in Mali, but a lot of that's just routine tasking, like bus runs and stuff like that. So it's certainly not the same. But I'm acutely aware now I've come, you know, that generation that I used to hate of like, and this one time in, in Helmand, and I don't want to be that like fucking pull up a sandbag person. But the truth is, we've got the war stories to tell and a lot of the new guys, bless them, they don't, they're not getting that. See, I do want to be that person. That's why I have the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were saying last week, like we're veterans and we're young and I was like, oh, but we're not young anymore. I still think of myself as young, but I'm 38 and so I'm clearly not fucking young anymore. Well, but. All right, let, let's, let's talk about that then. Veteran, what is a veteran in your opinion? So... I have to admit, I think a veteran, you've got to have gone over the wire. You've got to have, you've got to have, uh, you've got to have seen more. It's probably a good way to sum it up. And I don't think, if I'm being brutally honest, you can have seen more from an air conditioned office in Kandahar or Bastion or here in the UK. And I know it'll be controversial with a lot of people who say, you know, 
if you're anybody who's been in the forces as a veteran, but I, I just, I can't, you know, I can, I, they can quite happily call themselves ex-forces. Absolutely no issue with that. But I think a veteran you've got to have seen and tasted. Yeah, more. I'm not sure when it changed because like growing up and stuff, like I used to look into a lot about, um, you know, like history is my kind of my thing. And it was always, you could be in the Roman legions or you could be in Alexander the Great's army, but the veterans were the ones that had been in battle. Until you'd been in battle, you were a soldier or whatever, but you weren't a veteran. A veteran meant that you'd seen combat. Yeah. And um, when I was first, you know, I, so I joined the, the TA in 2000 and stuff, and it was, people were just ex-services. There wasn't, um, it wasn't ex, it was, you, you were ex-army or whatever, but yeah. you weren't a veteran. And like the veterans were the guys with the Burma stars and the World War II guys. They were veterans. And then everyone yeah. else was like, oh, I'm ex-services. And there was nothing derogatory about it. It was something to be proud of. Yeah. But there was a distinction. And now people are like, well, you can say the difference between veteran and combat veteran. I'm like, well, why can't we just, well, like that, that itself shows. And I, I think maybe what it's come from is, because the America has a veterans administration, they obviously have used the veteran thing for everyone because they all fall, fall under the veterans administration. And I think that's just kind of carried over into Britain now. But to me, it's like, yeah. you know, I find it funny because a lot of people complain about partici- participation trophies and stuff. Like, oh, fucking kids with the participation trophies. I'm like, well, that's kind of what it is where you're calling yourself a veteran and you never actually went out and fucking did anything. Like, and it's, yeah. look, like everyone played their part I'm not saying and if you went through training and you got an injury you know I'm still fucking thankful for what you did and what you wanted to do but I I just I feel like we water, we water, we water stuff down you know Oh, deleted massively. My biggest bugbear over the pull out of Afghan in the last few deaths I did was the hat police, which I'm sure you've heard the term of. Fucking people telling me that I need to put a seatbelt on to go driving when we haven't even got a windscreen in the vehicle or doors that work because every time we used to park the land over at the HLS, we used to blow the shit out of it when we used to make the <laughs> land. So our land over was just a heap of shit, but yet we had to fucking some geezers telling us we had to wear helmets and our fucking seatbelts and all this shit and put on our uh, Deglo belts to walk to him from the gym at night time and all that kind of crap and you're like they're, they're very important yeah and I remember coming off one IOT shout and um, I think the most I had in one day was a 14 that was back in 2000 14, 14 what maybe or something 14 IOT shouts or merch shouts in wait a day. one day wow yeah it was fucking mental. And in between one of them, I came running into the ops tent in Bastion and I was covered in claret. Literally had blood all up and down my flying gear. And um, we were waiting for the details to come through the next nine liner and getting a refill. So I ran up to the ops tent to get more of the information and ran in and I was hanging around waiting. And some woman, I think she was army, not to always say. No, fuck him. She, she was a camp rat. She was a camp rat. She was a camp rat. Yeah. She fucking told me to tie my hair up because it wasn't in a bun and I looked wow. scruffy. And I fucking nearly leveled her. I was just like, literally had just been putting, like scooping bodies off a battlefield and waiting to go out and get more. And this woman's telling me to put my hair in a bun. And I was like, you fucking... <laughs> do you reckon, good. right? Because I've always tried to think... Because I think one of the things you try and do as you get older, right, is you try and put yourself in other people's shoes more, right? Um, do you think that someone in her position is she she almost doesn't want to admit that oh my god this girl's covered in blood and like this is a war going on and that's someone's blood and they're dying and it's like a defense mechanism that they use to try and make it oh god if i tell her to wrap her hair up then it's going to make everything okay or are they just a cunt ah uh, oh i don't know i think um everyone's got their little empires they like haven't they and it's classic out in theater you, that's your little job and you're there to enforce girls having the hair tied up so that's what yeah. you're going to do and you're going to do your best ability but um 
yeah, it was a bit of like know your audience love. <laughs> wasn't best. Here's, I read this book called, and I recommend this to everyone. It's called Old Soldiers Never Die. It's by a guy called Frank Richards. Uh, I believe he was a military yeah. medal guy. He was um, he was Royal Welsh Fusiliers before the second. So he's back in the day in India, and then when the world First World War started up, he joined back up, and he was one of like five guys from his battalion to make it through the war from 1914 to 18. Oh. And uh, there's a chapter in his book called Us and Them. And um, I basically tried to, I, I kind of like, as a little kind of homage to him, did the same thing in Brothers in Arms because he was talking about exactly the same thing back then. You'd come out of the trenches for days, you'd just been fighting, you'd been bayoneting Germans, and then someone's going to be like, why haven't you got your putty on properly? You know, why haven't you, why is, you, why is, you, why, why, why is there a Fred hanging off your shirt? Yeah. Don't get me wrong, right? There's reasons that attention to detail exists. You know, you're a, you're a helicopter crew. If people didn't pay attention to detail, you'd probably be dead in a ditch somewhere. Um, but the, I, there are these, I think, little Hitlers, whatever you want to call them, who, like, they they don't understand. They don't. They don't. They're not in the military in their sense. Or, or sorry, what I should say is, there's the war fighting military, which is what you did and what I did and what we want to do. And there's the order and hierarchy military where that's the important thing to people. Yeah. Uh, and they're too, we're too, we, and this is what's so funny when people talk about veterans and stuff. You or I are very similar people, I think, but we could not be more different to that kind of person. Yeah. And I don't have to say there was a lot of it's personality based. I mean, and I think people, even in those roles, do change with age. I think, like we were talking about remembrance, as you get older, you appreciate the value of things and you appreciate loss a little bit more. And, um, you know, I've had a couple of instances used to go into stores in Bastion and routinely our, our flying kit or our boots would get covered in blood and you have to go and swap them. And sometimes you go in there, there's one of the younger guys, there was a big ho fucking, sh you know, shooting match about having to fill in this paperwork and they were still usable and this, that and the other. And you're like, mate, they're covered in someone's blood. I'm not wearing these. <laughs> Whereas some of the older guys would be like, absolutely, you know, couldn't do more to help you out because they realized what you were involved in. And um, it did get a little, I think, you know, age definitely has a factor on how people see things and I think a lot of the younger lads not to take anything away from them but they kind of they haven't cut their teeth properly yet and therefore they are just a little empire building and they're you know they're there to do a job so they have to do it for their ability and yeah not always the right thing to do but hey ho did you ever get in a fight when you were on tour or in the service in general no never had in a fight in my life I'm probably the most placid girl in the world I'm a right little mincer <laughs> yeah no I'm a yeah right little mincer me and I'm a little like Wear, wear the high heels and the dress out on a Saturday night girl and uh, wear my little pink running gear to the gym but listen to ACDC and Led Zeppelin when I'm there so uh, I like to surprise people but I'm definitely not a fighter <laughs> one of my favourite moments on tour was well not favourite moment it was a moment that's like one of, you know those moments that stick with you vividly Yeah, was like end of tour walking out the gym in, do, you, do you know the band called Distillers yeah so I was listening to Distillers, tracks called Sick of It All, and it was just kicking in at the beginning. I stepped out and like one of the Blackhawks just went right over my head, like buzzed down low. And it was nice. Like there's some of those moments, because the thing is, we grow up watching war movies and stuff, and they've all got a soundtrack, haven't they? Oh, yeah. Now, when you're actually in combat, you haven't got a soundtrack, but then there's occasions when you're on a big base or whatever, where you're listening to music and you do see a helicopter or whatever, and you're and then it all, yeah. and then all of a sudden it feels like you're in your, your own movie. It, yeah. yeah. What what's your kind of like so ACDC obviously ACDC yeah so I play I took I took spinning classes at Camp Bastion on my last step as a spinning instructor <laughs> and um, one of the songs I used to play for my spinning was uh, Let, uh, Die Motherfucker Die by Dukes yes. and yes. Uh, I got fucking 
getting told off by some squad leader blunty because my music was offensive. And I was like, this entire gym is full of blokes. Not a single person here minds this song, but this squad leader told me off, so I had to tone it down a bit. But yeah, it was mostly like Led Zepp, ACDC, that kind of thing. That was kind of my... We used to have, in Iraq, years and years ago, you used to be able to plug iPhones into the uh, the comms in the aircraft. Whoa. Fairly illegally, obviously. But uh, I remember making an approach to Tilil in Iraq uh, with Riding the Valkyries playing through the intercom, oh which my is pretty God. fucking cool. <laughs> so, uh, so fucking jealous. Yeah, and we always used to make a debt video, as we all do, don't we, at the end. And we used to have pretty good stuff on there as well. So, and the Jugger and the Thief and that kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, it was... Um, I know what you mean about listening to your, you play your own little movie track in your head, don't you? I just think it's amazing though. Like, imagine that. To, again, I'd love to be in that mind of that squadron leader or whatever, or whatever he was. Like, right, I know we're out here at war, but this lyrics, die motherfucker die, is entirely inappropriate. I'm like, what are you on about, mate? We're literally here to kill people. Yeah, there's another good one, Let the Bodies Hit the Floor, which is... Uh, that's a great that's one. That's on an American uh, video, fucking American bombers, flat packing Iraq, I think. So uh, it's pretty good. Drowning Pool Bodies, great track. Yeah. great. That's a great workout track, that is. Yeah, so that's why I quite like taking my spinning and bastion because it was uh, all my kind of music suited the audience out there, whereas I've taken a couple of them back here in Basingstoke at Fitness First. And <laughs> I don't think the... Uh, 19-year-old girls in Basingstoke appreciate dope just as much as I do. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I might have to stick to a bit more, maybe take that and some, I don't know, fucking pop, look, uh, modern music, as I call it, for the sprogs. So you do it as a, what, you do it as an instructor? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, that's, and that's actually when I got out, I qualified as a personal trainer and uh, a nutritionist, but I've not actually used it in anger yet. So I actually work now for a charity, a flying charity, which is really good, actually, I'll give them a mention because it's a charity called Airability and, um, they run scholarships for veterans who have obviously, you know, any kind of injury at all. So PTSD all the way through to no arms, no legs, you name it. And um, we've got adaptive fleet of aircraft so we can take people up flying. And a couple of guys, a guy called Arthur Williams, who is an ex-Marine. He got injured in a bike crash back in the UK when he was on leave. Uh, lost use of his legs and he's got his wings and he flies all around the UK now and does loads of like programs for Channel 4, I think, and BBC maybe. Um but yeah, we've had quite a lot of guys come through and they get their, their wings. Um, and it's quite nice for me because then my first job with their ability, I do a slightly different job now, a project manager, but my first job was the wounded injured soldiers rep. And I was getting a lot of the scholarships through from Help for Heroes and stuff like that and the veterans, um, society. And it was cool to see the guys who mm. not necessarily I'd scooped off the battlefield, but our crews had, and then see them kind of finish their journey by getting into the air and becoming pilots, which surpassed anything I'd ever done. And you think it's so nice. And a lot of them say in terms of recovery, even with chronic pain, when you're in the air and you're trying to fly an aircraft, that's all you can think about. Mm. So a lot of them find that their chronic pain goes away and their PTSD disappears because they're literally just trying not to fucking crash the aircraft. <laughs> so uh, yeah. so it's quite a cool thing to do. So if anyone's listened to this and has, you know, any kind of form of injury come out of the services, there's um, we've got scholarships there. And I quite like it because when they come to visit, I always have a good gob off in the crew room and we always have that, again, that mutual, like, magnet that bonds us all together. So uh, have a good gob off, as we call it. What's your head like as a civvy? Uh, lacking in patience is probably the best way to put it. Um I think I still cling a little bit to the military in terms of people I socialise with and that kind of thing. I don't think I've quite quite slid into civilian life just yet. Uh, I get quite frustrated with civvies and uh, a lot of their mentality and work ethos. 
But um, and that's why I'm really lucky with their ability, actually, because everyone there is just exactly like the military, which is really good. Um, and yeah, I must admit this year, I think just lockdown with a bit too much time to think, I've definitely gone over a lot of stuff I've done with the military and, it, you know, it rolls around in your head like a marble a lot of the time. And uh, I think I'll just take a while to kind of sort itself out. And, and it'll, eventually there was, I've never, I've been quite lucky that a lot of my mates, certainly a lot of colleagues came out of the forces with PTSD from the stuff we saw down the back of the aircraft and whatnot. But I always thought I dodged it in spectacular fashion. And I was like, am I weird? Because I'm not getting these thoughts. But I have to admit, like this year, I think more than ever. And it's just the thing of boredom. You know, when too much time to think, mm-hmm. things do catch up with you a little bit. Yeah, I mean, I don't think lockdown's good for people in, in that sense. Like, look, and that's not to mean that there's not good things that can come out of lockdown. But I just think in general, there is definitely so much thing, such a thing as too much time to think on your own yeah like because it's one thing to think things through and then be able to like talk it through with people but then and and i look if you're a fucking team player and you've been team player for 17 years on and part of a crew to then be on your own in a house it's gonna be fucking hard oh yeah big style and i think as well when even when you're in the forces all the people you knock around with for a beer on a friday night and a saturday night in the pub are all your mates from the forces so you just naturally just talk shit and decompress and uh, when you go to the civvy world, you do end up, you do lose contact. No matter how much you want to say you don't, you do lose contact. Uh, the good thing is, though, you still see them like once every fucking five years. And it's like you've never not seen each other. That's why I love about Forces Friends is you can genuinely catch up at Remembrance Service once a year. And it's like you've never, you know, never been apart. What, what, what do you think then? You mentioned about like the civvy way of thinking and, and that kind of thing. Like, like, um... Like what? What are you? Do you? Are you at the point? Because I, 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 well, let me tell you what I, I kind of think, and then see how this fits in, right? When I first got out, I thought there was a real difference between civvies and service, because I used to feel like civvies, most civvies were like lazy and then fucking all that kind of stuff. But I just hadn't kind of been around the right ones, to be honest. Like, where's your kind of like? Is what? What? what what's you know, kind of unpack more of like what you were saying a minute ago about like how you kind of don't like the civvy mentality and stuff. So I, uh, I'm actually really lucky in that when you were saying about being around the right people, I'm lucky in terms of air ability that I work with at the minute. Everyone there is disabled, so they're a real driven mindset, mm. and all of them overcome adversity every day. Like no matter what they do, just even getting to work, some of them they're overcoming some kind of you know either physical disability or something else, but they. To, to me, everyone says, about, like, who's your hero? And, you know, I always used, like, soldiers have always been my hero. And it sounds like a really cliche thing to say, but I have always thought that. And, um, you know, over, like, a football or any of that kind of thing. And uh, I look at the guys at Airability and the stuff that they overcome. And they're now the people I admire and aspire to. So I've been quite lucky in that respect. But I do think there's a lot of civvies out there who, and it's mostly from the gym. <laughs> it sounds really silly. But that's, <laughs> that's the only other people I've got to compare to because, I haven't had another job bar that, you know, come out of the forces. So the other civvies I run into would be civvies at the gym. And don't get me wrong, there's a lot of great ones there. And some of my best mates, like, really know how to push themselves. But you go to, like, a circuit class at the gym, and it's like, fuck me. It's like watching the RAF do a bleep test. <laughs> <laughs> they give up at the first press-up, and you're like, seriously? And they just don't know how to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. And that's what I like about forces people is that we kind of know when it starts to hurt, that's when it gets good, and that's when you've got to push through. And, um, and that's where you learn more about yourself. And I think civvies maybe don't have that mindset. They're kind of like, oh, this hurts a bit now. It's time to give up. What, what do you reckon is, is going to be the biggest challenge for you now as a civvy? Um, probably just to start letting go a bit, a bit more. You know, uh, I think um, I say, like I mentioned about lockdown, it gives you too much time to think about it. And I have to kind of now accept that 
I'm not a Chinook crewman anymore. No. <laughs> I'm just Liz from Basingstoke. And uh, and it's the almost the most depressing thing in the world when you're explaining to someone that I used to be a Chinook crewman and it's like, you know, I used to be a soldier, I used to be this. It's just a really depressing terminology, isn't it? So, <laughs> But we all have to get our heads around it eventually, don't we? So, and what, what, what's your plan to do that? Or do, do you, are you still figuring it out? Or what? I'm still figuring it out, I think. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> I'll see you again this time next year. <laughs> But I think it's important to just have that recognition of that, though, to know that it is going to be a thing. I think that's kind of like, you know, if you know something's going to be an issue, you will find a way to figure it out. It's, it's a, you know, you'd be in a lot worse place if you didn't even, if you weren't even acknowledging that. Yeah, I have to admit, I think as time's gone on the last year, I had nothing in my entire house, my apartment that was, you would you could have walked in here, you would never have known I was in the military. I had nothing up on the walls. I had not a single chinook anywhere. And now I've got... um a little sort of chinook model that someone gave me for my birthday this year. And I've also got uh, one of my colleagues at work when I left made me a chinook out of 762 rounds, which is pretty cool. And it's got oh, wow. um, combi tools as the rotor blades. So I've got, I've actually put that out now. And it, whereas before that was just in a box um, and I put my leaving print up in the spare bedroom. So I, don't, I certainly don't have a shrine in my time in the forces like some people do, you know, the old downstairs bathroom. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm now, I'm not, you know, it's not, it's nice to have those things of just as gentle reminders, I guess, and and talking points when people come to visit. But um, I think if I started to wear my berry on a on a daily basis down the uh, you know down to the co-op, then I'd start to get worried. <laughs> but I'm not quite at that point yet. Are you looking forward to like are there parts of civil life that you're looking forward to? Yeah, yeah. I think um, the biggest thing I've noticed is I'm starting to relax a little bit about time, and this might be an aircrew thing, or this might just be a, you know, like a military thing. But everything we do in our lives for my entire career it's always about time isn't it five minutes before five minutes before and um and if you're late you've really fucked up and certainly in our job if you're late fucking people die you know that's mm. just the, the nuts and bolts of it and um you spend my entire 17 years in the forces being really hung up on being on time for everything and i don't get me wrong lateness is my fucking biggest bugbear i hate when people are late but now i don't stress about it as much because there's stuff that you can't help mm. and you're going to be late then you've just got to accept that you're going to be late and it doesn't stress me out. Whereas I find kind of in my last couple of years in the forces and certainly the first few months out of the forces, I was always stressing like fuck about being late for stuff or time. And it's like a big prison that you live in. And I'm still, I'm like slowly breaking down the walls of that, which is pretty good. That's a good nugget of wisdom, I think. Any other, Anything yeah. else like that you want to pass on to people? Just the whole, uh, when you come back to the mental health thing, that was the one thing I've really noticed this year. I used to be so into my running and, and sort of before lockdown hit, that was the one way I emptied my bucket, which I'm sure a lot of us do in the military is, you know, smash yourselves down the gym, go out for a tab, do whatever you do. And it kind of empties that little bucket. And I didn't do a lot of that in, uh, in lockdown because I was helping on a different project and couldn't leave the house for a lot of the time. And um, it, I noticed it really got on top of me just without that every day, just getting out and doing something or just, you know, having that endorphin hit of doing exercise. And um all call sign guys preach it all the time and it's like that classic thing whereas i knew that it, i was getting myself in a pretty dark place because i wasn't doing it but i wasn't fucking helping myself at one point you know <laughs> i knew i was getting there but i wasn't doing anything to arrest it and uh yeah i just can't stress that enough for anyone especially now that we're in the second lockdown is yes it's shitty and it's dark out there but even for half an hour just go and fucking annihilate yourself if you need to and uh you'll definitely feel better at the end of it Guys, thank you for listening to today's podcast. Liz, thanks for coming on. And not just thanks for coming on, thanks for turning up when we needed you. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's lots of infantry and combat arms listening who were very glad to hear the sound of a walker in the distance. Um, so thank you. And thank you to your mates. Uh, thank you to the RAF Chinook crews out there. Um, 
guys, if you enjoy the podcast, you know the deal. Please spread the word. I want to say thank you to the Royal British Legion, not just for supporting today's podcast, but for everything they do. They are tagged up in the show notes, guys. If you um, are a veteran in need of some help or if you are a veteran family in need of some help, check out the Royal British Legion. They do all kinds of stuff from sponsoring podcasts like this one to organising the Festival Remembrance. We owe them a lot. Um, and I want to say thank you as well to you guys that through the through the podcast we raised a bit of money for the Poppy Appeal. Um, thank you very much to the guys that did that. I really appreciate it. Um, thank you Combat Fuel. Thank you Zulu Alpha Straps for today's uh, sponsorship. Really appreciate you guys. Um, guys, we'll be back in a few days um, with the next episode. A few days, maybe next week. I'm not sure yet. We'll see how the schedule pans out. But we will be back and we will love you as always. So I'll catch you next time. I love you, bye. You told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart. You told me you were sorry and yeah, my whole world fell apart. You said it's not my fault and yeah, I've never done you wrong. I'm grinding to a hope now I can see you're moving on. I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change. You keep me to the gutter, yeah, I'll never be the same. I've got to let you go now, live your life and spread your wings and yeah, you put on quite a show and pulled the puppet strings and are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain or maybe you should thank me. It's your loss and my gain. I'm leaving now forever, I won't hang my head in shame but yeah you've taken me for granted and you should feel ashamed you sold a dream to all of us a dream that we'd all die for a reason for us all to live and something we could fight for i might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn but no matter what i do my hands remembering my rifle yeah life's hard i know that still wouldn't change shit i wouldn't go back yeah i wouldn't go back feelings i hold back Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I